You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was an extraordinary breach and a seismic shock hit the Supreme Court on Monday when Politico published a draft opinion overturning the 1973 landmark case of Roe v. Wade. In the draft by Justice Samuel Alito, five justices voted to overturn the constitutional right to abortion, which has been guaranteed for nearly half a century. Joining me is UCLA law professor Adam Winkler. Generally, the Supreme Court has been considered just about leak-proof. How surprised were you? Well, I was quite surprised because while there have been very, very rarely leaks of a pending outcome in a Supreme Court case, I can recall no case where we've seen a leaked majority opinion in full laying out the court's reasoning and rationale and details of the decision. So that is, even among the instances of previous leaks, historically unprecedented. Describe the process of the conferencing and the circulation of drafts. Well, that's right. This majority opinion is really only a draft majority opinion, and it may not be the final decision that comes out of the Supreme Court. The way the Supreme Court works is the court hears oral argument and then a few days later meets in what they call the conference. And the conference involves only the justices. No clerks or secretaries or assistants are allowed in the room. And they go around and vote on the cases and hash out how the reasoning is going to go. Those votes that the court cast in the conference set a majority and sometimes a minority perspective on the court. And the two sides will go off writing their opinions. But those votes that are cast at the conference are not considered final votes. And there have been instances in the past where justices have changed their votes after the conference, including in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, one of the important cases court here purports to overturn. Chief Justice John Roberts came out with a statement saying that this is not going to affect how the court operates. But I wonder how this might, in fact, affect the justices at their conferences and in circulating future drafts if they're concerned that there could be a leak. 
Well, I imagine it could have some effect. You might imagine, for instance, the court adopting a system where every draft opinion has a watermark of some sort or a distinguishing feature so that if a PDF file comes out, like in this case, it can be traced back to the recipient of that draft. However, I also think that more importantly than the leaking of the opinion, it's the opinion itself is going to cause a lot of disharmony on the Supreme Court. And we're likely to see the two sides of the Supreme Court very, very starkly divided in coming years and very bitter over the court's overturning of Roe versus Wade. Let's talk about what Justice Alito wrote in his opinion. He wrote that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Explain his reasoning. Well, his argument is is that Roe is an unwritten right under the Constitution, and that the way that we define which unwritten rights are protected by the Constitution simply doesn't support the holding of Roe versus Wade. Alito says the way we do that is we look to history and tradition. Those rights that are deeply rooted in history and tradition are protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause. And he says the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in history and tradition. Uh, And indeed, many people have criticized Roe versus Wade over the years for not offering a particularly vibrant and robust argument for why the right to choose abortion was protected by the Constitution. He wrote, far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. That seems to me like it's a political argument. Well, there is a certain paradox in Alito's opinion. He says that the court needs to rule on the basis of law without regard to any of the political consequences or political opinions of Americans. And yet this very idea pops up in the reasoning uh, of the court that uh, his majority opinion says that Roe hasn't settled things. And because it hasn't settled things, that becomes a reason for overturning it. What that suggests is that people who are opposed to a constitutional ruling of the Supreme Court just need to agitate hard enough to make that a continuing and current controversy. And if so, then they will have unsettled the precedent and made it so the precedent doesn't survive. Let's talk about Alito's tone in writing this, which is very caustic and very critical of the Supreme Court author of Roe. Well, I think that's right. And he is very caustic. And Alito's opinions uh, have been very caustic for many years. And indeed, his questions at oral argument often play the same way. One thing that seems to run through Alito's opinion is a lack of any understanding of how anyone could come up with a different argument or a different perspective on the underlying right. And I think that's one of the real weaknesses of this opinion. Many people have criticized some of the due process privacy opinions that were written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, such as Obergefell and Lawrence, recognizing same-sex marriage and same-sex intimacy as fundamental rights, respectively. But one thing Anthony Kennedy was always very careful to do was to try to show respect for the other side and for people who had differing views and made specific efforts in his opinion to call those people into his opinion and to support his arguments rather than sneering at them as being totally lacking in merit and any serious constitutional argument. Adam, Alito writes that we've long recognized, however, that stare decisis is not an inexorable command. And he's got a list of cases. What does that do to the view of the court as being, you know, an institution that follows precedent 
even though on occasion we've seen that they don't follow precedent. But this is a precedent that the little girls were born with this precedent, and now it's just being taken away from them, this right. Well, that's right. And I do think that um, uh, the court's treatment of precedent just highlights that the Roberts court in particular is not that interested in precedent and has been overturning precedents pretty much left and right, often just using the shadow docket so that they don't even have to offer uh, a precise and concise uh, opinion and reasoning explaining the decision. So we have seen that precedents are being overturned uh, at an increasingly rapid rate in the new Roberts court, especially after the addition of three new justices under President Trump, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And I think this case is a wake-up call for those who think that Supreme Court nominees who go to the Senate and tell Susan Collins, as Brett Kavanaugh did, that Roe versus Wade is the settled law of the land, don't really mean anything by it. That precedent doesn't really mean anything to the justices of the Supreme Court. Well, Alito himself described it as precedent of his own confirmation hearings. Leaks happen in Congress. Leaks happen in the White House, not usually in the Supreme Court. How does this affect the court's legitimacy? Does it reinforce the idea that it's become a more political institution? I'm not sure what effect the leak will have on the perception of legitimacy of the Supreme Court. I think more disastrous to the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the eyes of many in the public is overturning Roe versus Wade, is the substance of the underlying decision that was released in draft form. If this decision holds, I think that many, many people will lose faith in the Supreme Court in a way that the Supreme Court hasn't seen in many, many decades. And I would expect that a lot of people who used to say, well, yeah, they talk about overturning Roe versus Wade, but they'll never really do it will now have to be be forced to really reconsider their uh, approach to politics and who they want to vote for and, and how important issues of choice really are to their sense of liberty and democracy. I've heard two different viewpoints, one being that the revelation of this draft opinion could lead the majority to dig in and stick to the opinion. The other side is that, well, it could lead some of the justices to rethink the opinion and perhaps go to the middle ground that the chief justice reportedly has been interested in. What do you think? It's so hard to know, June. You know, we just don't have any information on who leaked it and what the possible reasons are for leaking it. One could imagine arguments that this was leaked by conservatives who are looking to shore up Alito's opinion and stop someone like a Kavanaugh from wavering and signing on to a more moderate decision. Others have speculated that it, it's probably someone on the left, a left-leaning clerk who's so outraged and shocked that that person wants to let the world know what's coming in the Supreme Court and how outrageous this opinion really is in light of constitutional law. I think those are really the key things. And among lawyers, I think that Alito's draft of Opinion, if it becomes the majority opinion, will not gain the respect of the legal community. At critical points in the argument, Alito abandoned legal analysis for really pure policy preference. And uh, I don't think that the argument that Alito makes will be received with any more compliments than Justice Blackmun's original decision in Roe versus Wade. So it is possible, not probable perhaps, but it is possible that one of the justices could change their vote. Absolutely. Justices can and have changed their votes after conference and after majority opinions have been circulated. It happens 
you know, with some regularity without saying it's frequent. It does happen and it happens many times over the years. One prominent example is Planned Parenthood v. Casey, one of the cases that the Supreme Court purports to overturn in this draft opinion. In that case, Justice Kennedy originally voted to overturn Roe v. Wade and to uphold broad regulations of abortion. And then he changed his mind after the majority opinion uh, started circulating. And it's happened in other much less controversial areas as well. Sometimes justices find that they think an outcome is right until they see an opinion explaining the outcome. And then they say, wait, that reasoning and argument just doesn't work for me. I think I'm going to change my votes. I would be very surprised if that happens in this particular case. I think these justices have been thinking about Roe versus Wade for many decades. All of them grew up at a time when Roe versus Wade was a very controversial opinion, a subject of much conversation among the Federalist Society gatherings that all of the current conservative justices attended with regularity. And so I think that their views on this issue are not really in play. And that brings us back to all the confirmation hearings where every single justice said Roe was established precedent. I guess that doesn't mean much anymore. Well, I guess it only means that it's an established precedent, but not that that precedent will be upheld if they get the chance to rule on it. You know, there is nothing wrong with overturning precedent as a matter of constitutional law. The court has done that many times and will do it many times in the future. There is perhaps a little bit more of a concern about overturning precedent right now when we know that this challenge to Roe versus Wade was really instigated by uh, changing personnel on the Supreme Court. And it really undermines the court's legitimacy to overturn widely supported, incredibly well-recognized precedents like Roe versus Wade, like Planned Parenthood versus Casey, immediately after three new justices uh, have been appointed. I think that really calls into question the court's neutrality. And for an opinion that claims to want to leave the issue of abortion to politics and not constitutionalize it, we see that the constitutional question itself is decided by politics decided by the 2016 election and Mitch McConnell's manipulation of the confirmation process to get three justices appointed to the Supreme Court in the Trump years. People are now speculating, and Alito in his opinion said this doesn't mean that other rights are in jeopardy. But does this mean that other rights based on privacy are in jeopardy? For example, same-sex marriage or contraception or interracial marriage? I think all of those precedents are called into question quite directly by Alito's opinion. You're absolutely right. Alito's opinion says those decisions are not affected by the abortion rule. He says because abortion is different. Abortion is different, he says, because it involves potential fetal life, protecting potential fetal life. Well, that's fair as a distinction, except it's not a distinction that's grounded in constitutional law or constitutional analysis, right? There's nothing in the history and tradition of the 14th Amendment that says anything about fetal life or why rights that affect third parties aren't going to be uh, recognized by the Constitution. We have many rights that adversely affect third parties. Think of the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms that results in a number of people dying every year from gun violence. And so he makes a distinction of, to distinguish away those cases, but the basis for the distinction has no constitutional grounding. It's just a policy preference. Well, we think this is different because it's got fetal life involved. Uh, Note that some of the other privacy rights that he refers to, such as the right to use contraception, arguably have a similar effect as Roe versus Wade in that a potential fetal life is involved. More importantly, I think 
that despite Alito's effort to distinguish those other privacy right cases, the history and tradition analysis that Alito offers that says we only really look to history and law before 1868, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, would not support many of the privacy rights that the court has found. The right to interracial marriage would not be recognized under this history and tradition attest that Alito proposes here. A right to same-sex intimacy or a right to minors to have some sexual privacy rights would not be recognized at all if we do the same history and tradition analysis that he offers. And so I think, despite Alito's assurances, all those other rights are in jeopardy. Conservatives have had their eye on Roe for so long. What is it about Roe that has led this whole sort of revolution? Well, I think it's that there's a real large cohort in American society that wants to restrict abortion, that doesn't want women to have these rights, that doesn't want women to be able to exercise this kind of control over their bodies and sexuality. And what's happened in in the last 30 years is that while there's been plenty of bad decisions by the Supreme Court, plenty of decisions, poor reasoning, but few of them occasion the kind of controversy and backlash that Roe versus Wade has caused. And I think that's part of the reason why the court will overturn Roe versus Wade, because these justices have been steeped in the idea uh, that Roe versus Wade is the original sin of American constitutional law. The most obvious example in all of American history of uh, unbridled judicial activism, and they see it as their role to overturn it and to uh, restore an earlier version of American law in which women's bodily autonomy was not recognized as a constitutional right. Thanks so much for your insights, Adam. That's Professor Adam Winkler of UCLA Law School. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. 
Stiefel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Opioid overdoses killed nearly half a million Americans over two decades, and the epidemic is getting worse instead of better. DEA Administrator Ann Milgram says an American is dying every five minutes from an overdose, and 75 percent of those deaths are from opioids. It's, you know, Americans of all ages, cuts across every single demographic, rural, urban, suburban, and that people are dying at record rates. San Francisco says opioid manufacturers Allergan and Teva, distributor Anda, and pharmacy giant Walgreens flooded the city's streets with prescription drugs. And it's suing over the toll opioids have taken on the city, where one quarter of emergency room visits are the result of opioid-related issues. Joining me is health care attorney Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. Harry, San Francisco is using a public nuisance theory. What does it have to prove to make its case? So to prove a public nuisance, San Francisco has to prove that the three drug companies at issue, along with Walgreens Pharmacy, basically engaged in behavior that so harmed so many people in San Francisco and that they need to be essentially forced to pay for that harm. And the harm here that we're talking about, of course, is prescription opioids. And the claim is that these companies are responsible for having flooded San Francisco with prescription opioids and then failed to prevent them from being routed into the illegal market for misuse. San Francisco claims they aggressively marketed opioids to doctors as a risk-free panacea for all forms of pain. What's the line between aggressively marketing and just marketing? It's an interesting question. I think, you know, it's much easier when we talk about this question of where the line is on marketing to look at behavior from, for example, Purdue Pharma, where it was very clear that they were aware that the problem of overdoses and the addictiveness of the drug was causing problems, and they just kept marketing more aggressively and sort of building that issue into their marketing. It's a lot more fuzzy when you come to uh, companies like Walgreens or Allergan, Teva Pharmaceutical, where they were offering these drugs in the market. It's not clear what they did that was so unusual in that marketing. And frankly, I think that the city is going to have a very hard time showing that there was anything particularly distinctive about the way that these drugs were promoted that somehow ignored the risk associated with them. The defendants claim that they were sort of bit players in the opioid crisis, and they say the blame should be directed at Purdue, which has declared bankruptcy. I think it's a compelling argument. You know, the reality is that there were a lot of companies that manufactured and distributed, and in the case of the pharmacies, dispensed these drugs, but they are not all equal, right? Purdue Pharma made billions of dollars and orchestrated an aggressive campaign to manipulate how doctors and patients perceived the risk. There's not the same kind of evidence with regard to Allergan and Teva. These are companies that clearly had a business line devoted to pain medication, but there's no signs that I've seen to this point to suggest that they were somehow scheming to uh, hide the risks associated with these medicines or doing something to promote them more aggressively than all the other medications that they sell. I personally think that the city has an uphill battle in this case. Before trial, defendants J&J and three large distributors reached a $26 billion nationwide settlement of opioid claims. As I mentioned, Purdue went bankrupt. 
Five days before trial, Endo Pharmaceuticals reached a deal with the city. Let's say the jury does find these drug companies in this trial liable. Do they consider the settlements in deciding damages? If they reach a decision that there is liability, that the city proved its case of a public nuisance, the, the jury will then be asked to apportion responsibility and to allocate some responsibility to different companies. So there's going to be a moment where a jury is asked to decide how much Allergan, for example, is responsible or how much Walgreens is responsible of the total amount of liability here. And, and that's a very, you know, it's hard to see how a jury is going to be in a good position, assuming that they get that far, to make a really nuanced decision when you have a lot of different companies, you know, promoting a drug for which there was enormous demand, clearly, uh, you know, for pain, but which was risky. That's a process the jury will be forced to go through. But I can't say that I am optimistic that it will be a, an easy one or a necessarily precise one for deciding how much each party should be responsible to pay. Do you have any insight into why the other, you know, why J&J, Endo, et cetera, why they decided to settle? Some of these companies have uh, previous cases where there has been more negative evidence. So I think in the case of Endo, for example, there, there was some evidence, not nearly to the extent that we had against Purdue Pharma, but that they, they were a company that was aware of the risk and was marketing, for example, offering um, inducements to doctors to promote the drug. So Endo was one of those companies that had more risk because there was some bad behavior. And I think that a lot of the companies that chose to settle were companies that had something that they were afraid the uh, prosecutors and the uh, city attorneys here would, would point to to actually make them look like they had behaved badly. And my feeling is just the opposite, that in this case, the companies that are still standing don't see that evidence and are challenging the city to to make a case that they that they actually did anything wrong here. Some of the claims against Walgreens are that the pharmacy was under guidelines to take 15 minutes to fill prescriptions and they didn't check enough. That seems pretty thin. Yeah, I you know, my perspective on this is that over the last two decades we've seen the standards that are expected for pharmacies for example change radically. And this whole set of expectations of how much compliance, how much verification a pharmacist and a pharmacy is expected to do to verify that something is legitimate have been completely overhauled. But we're not talking about Walgreens actually affirmatively doing anything bad. We're saying that they failed to do certain checks that we wish they would have done. I definitely think that if you talk to anybody who is learning to be a pharmacist today, they're, they're learning a very different set of responsibilities than the, the people who went through pharmacy programs, you know, 20 years ago. But, but I do think that, um, I think it's a tough, a tough argument because there was a way of doing business. Pharmacies were entitled to just see that if, if it really was a prescription from a doctor to assume that it was legitimate. And then all of a sudden, in cases like this, the argument is being made that no, the pharmacist had to do more. And it's not clear how much more pharmacists could do Beyond just seeing that a doctor prescribed this to a patient, it's not clear that we want pharmacists to be second-guessing doctors. So I, I actually think there's a very t tough argument the city is going to have to try to prove here. This public nuisance legal strategy against drug makers for causing or fueling the opioid crisis hasn't had a very good track record, has it? A California judge ruled in favor of the defendants, five pharmaceuticals, including Teva, five months ago, and 
The Oklahoma Supreme Court overturned a ruling against Johnson & Johnson. Has this public nuisance argument been successful anywhere? Yeah, it has had more uh, failures than successes. It's definitely, you know, public nuisance comes out of an environmental context where it was much easier to say that a certain company polluted the environment in a certain area. And it was a very direct link from the source of the harm to the actual harm, the pollution in those cases. In this context where we see a legitimate medication manufactured, distributed, prescribed by doctors, dispensed, and then traveling through the system in ways that cause harm, people getting addicted, people selling it onto the street, it's a lot more complicated with a lot more different players, and it's not that clear link that we see in those environmental cases. So I I think that the public nuisance, I understand why it's appealing to government and to attorneys who are looking to make a case to try to get the costs that were imposed here, which were significant on healthcare, on law enforcement, across communities, to be shared. But it's not an easy theory, and I'm not bullish on the future of public nuisance litigation in, in this area. This is the fourth bellwether case, I believe, chosen for trial from about 3,000 in the federal opioid litigation. Explain why it's called a bellwether case, what that means. We had a, like a logjam, you know, of just thousands and thousands of cases to, that had to be tried. So, so when we say bellwether, we're, the judge in this case was basically selecting a handful of representative cases to look at harms in different contexts. So this, I believe, is the first urban-focused case of how did opioid harm, you know, how did it progress, what did it look like in a city as opposed to uh, some of the rural cases, for example, in Ohio that were marked as bellwethers. So the idea is that hopefully the parties see how the arguments play out in these cases, how juries respond to them, and they use that as a, a kind of test so that we don't have to go through the same exercise over and over again and that the parties on both sides will have a better sense of what they're odds of success are, what their liability risks are, and settle cases based on the indicators that come out from this case. Let's talk just a little bit about Purdue. A $6 billion deal was approved in bankruptcy court last year, but an appeals court threw it out in a surprising decision, and now it's being argued over in a New York court? Yes. So this is super interesting. The reason the settlement was thrown out on appeal was the question of whether a a bankruptcy judge had the power to give the members of the family, the Sackler family, which owned Purdue Pharma, protection, right? The, The Sackler family is a very wealthy billionaire family that did not file for bankruptcy. The company that they founded did, but their insistence was that they were only going to settle and pay these billions of dollars out of Purdue if they also were given this legal shield. And so the court overturned that. And so now the parties are back in court arguing about it. And we're still seeing the family completely dug in and protecting themselves, right? The family, by the way, reports have come out that the family took over $10, 11000000000 billion out of the company in the years that they were aware of this crisis. And so it's still up in the air whether we're going to get a settlement here. I assume we will eventually, but it's a fascinating question of how far courts can go to protect the individual families from the harm resulting from the company that they that they owned and uh, and managed. And the Sackler family has come to represent sort of like the evil kingpins of the opioid crisis. So there's not much sympathy for them at all. You know, the truth is that, you know, most of the family was far away from this business. There were a handful of family members, Dr. Richard Sackler, who were at the heart of this. You know, in some ways, 
you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing. They, the, the family clearly, anytime you walk away with over $10 billion from a business that killed thousands of people and imposed um, billions of dollars of harm, you're going to have a, a tough time getting sympathy. But I do feel for the family members who weren't involved that their name, which was used to grace, you know, museums and, and all kinds of, you know, amazing medical schools and institutions all over the world for their philanthropy, has now become the sort of keyword for abusive behavior in the pharmaceutical world. So it's a, a lot of damage to the Sackler name that's going to last far longer than these cases. And finally, I wanted to get your take on the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration told the Senate that he wants to toughen standards for drug makers who want to sell new opioids. Congress would have to give the FDA that power. Do you think that's a good idea? Look, I think it's a good idea, although I, do, I think there's a real conundrum here. The reality is that something like one in five American adults, 50 million people, complain that they live in severe or serious chronic pain. So we have an enormous need for these drugs. We've learned how dangerous they can be, how addictive they are. But we've also seen that when you deny people access to them, you know, it leads to terrible things, including increased risks of suicide. And so we do need more controls, and I think it's a good thing for there to be more effort. But at the same time, we've learned, for example, that when the FDA requires the drug companies, for example, to put out additional educational materials to doctors so that doctors understand the risk, and the net outcome of that is that doctors actually prescribe more of the medication. So I think that we sort of have these opposing tensions where there's an enormous need for these medications. Doctors are, are nervous in the, in the current environment about what they can and can't do. And I think more clarity from government, more uh, requirements that if, if those translate to making it safer for doctors to prescribe to patients, I think those will be a good thing. Thanks, Harry. That's Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.